And thanks to Crime Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and as ever, I'm joined by my regular co-host, colleague, confidant, and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Good day, listeners. Mate, confident, confidant, you happy with that? Yeah, I'll take that. Is it an upgrade from sidekick? Uh, you, you've never been a sidekick. You've always been an equal partner in this. Um, so I, I, I'm really worried. I do detect a note of Not at you all. Know, second fiddle syndrome, which I, I've, I've never given any... You know, maybe I do most of the talking in the interviews, but... That's it doesn't, that's not a reflection of you. That's more a reflection of me. But anyway, keep it moving, as uh, our producer Lockie would say. Mate, uh, big week um, on the social media front um, with uh, Australian Brews News. There's a bit happening. Yeah, posted Friday about this potential stoush uh, regarding Pacific Ale. Uh, oh, sorry, Matt. Which Pacific Ale are you talking about? Who's, who's this... brewery Pacific Ale? <laughs> well... Pacific Ale, beer or style, is 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 the question. Yes, and uh, listeners, I'm presuming that the listenership uh, will have seen it on the Facebook page that Pacific Ale, a beer that is very closely associated with uh, Stone and Wood Brewery, ding ding ding, Stone and Wood are a sponsor of our brewery. Some some would argue exclusively um, associated with Stone and Wood Brewing Company, Byron Bay. Well, that's the number of the issue, isn't it? Uh, Thunder Road Brewing Company, ding, 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 has previously sponsored uh, Australian Brews News and also uh, has flown me down to the brewery on at least one, one occasion. So but if there are two mutually exclusive conflicts, does that equal, <laughs> mean that there is no conflict? I don't know. Anyway, just uh, letting the listeners know. Um, but yeah, so suddenly I've been seeing in my Facebook feed all of these ads for Thunder Road Pacific Ale. I thought, gee, that's a little bit interesting. Um, given that I knew that there was a trademark application afoot um, for Stone and Wood, but even without the trademark application afoot, Pacific Ale is kind of a Stone and Wood uh, identity. Um, and yeah, just asking uh, both breweries whether they saw there was a trademark issue. Stone and Wood, as you might expect, if there is a potential for legal case, just to say, look, you know, it's our beer. We've got a trademark application of foot, but don't want to take it too much further. But it was interesting to see Thunder Road came out and sort of said, oh, well, it's not a beer, it's a style. Even Stone and Wood says that. Um, Prof, I have to say that there do seem to be some divided opinions in, uh, you know, the, the interwebs land, um, the comments on Facebook and also our website. Um, you know, seem it, it seems to be running strongly Stone and Wood's way, but there are, it, it's not unanimous, that's for sure. Uh, no, that's true. Now, there's been a, a, a couple of comments that I think point to people's uh, ideologies, perhaps, rather than um, them looking at it subjectively. I, I think, look, intellectual property, I think, is probably one of those... It, it's certainly not an area that I would consider myself well-versed at all in, let alone an expert. But it seems to me that your brand, your trademark, your... You know, I, I guess you, your name is all you've got at the end of the day when uh, in terms of respect in terms of your your what's the word um reputation and particularly in an industry that's as close and as tight-knit and as kumbaya-ish as as craft beer is and and i guess that's the thing craft beer is growing up we've seen similar cases happen in america and england and you know there are only so many names that you can come up with and uh you know if you've successfully uh, been trading under a name um, and somebody else starts up with the same name and you haven't protected it, you know, do do they just say, well, you know, I'm a good guy, I'm not going to follow it? Or do they say, well, look, you know, you haven't taken a trademark, I'm fully entitled to use it, you know, 
all's fair in love and business. Yeah, and I think too that it's important that if you feel you have uh, a brand that needs protecting, that you take steps to protect it because I think it was Shane Welch from um, from Six Point in the States sort of said, look, you know, part of the, the issue can be that if you kind of go, oh, look, I'm not going to make a fuss about it, I'll let it go, it's tantamount to, to tacit approval that, okay, yeah, I, 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 I concede the use of my trademark by other by other breweries. Pretty much, and, and, and that's the thing, and, and that's once you do start um, trademarking, you can't let it slide because otherwise if, if you don't use your trademark or you don't protect it, then funnily enough, some brewery might come along and say, well, you've abandoned the trademark and sue you for the right to it. But I can't think of any recent examples of that, Pete. Yeah, look, there's probably examples where non-beer products have um, have felt infringed. And I guess, um, you know, uh, Monster Mash comes to mind. Um, oh, yeah, the, 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 my, my case was actually Thunder Road. Oh, sorry. That, so you've been, yes, so, yes, sorry. It, was, it, it was a little bit obscure. Um, no, I'm with no, I'm with it. Now. But yeah. But, but no, unfortunately, the law says that if you don't protect your trademark, um, you uh, lose it. Um, and, you know, look, it, uh, yeah, look, I, I, I don't know what the answer is, Prof. I mean, no, all come. I know there's, is... There's more to yeah, come in this. All, all I know hopefully is... Hopefully a gentleman's agreement can be reached between two pretty nice, you know, um, bunches of people in the, in the craft beer business. And regardless, you know, look... If you are going to make comments, can I just can I just give people just a little bit of advice? Don't stick your personal preferences or or prejudices against the people's beer in uh, to to try to strengthen your argument because you just look like a dick. Yeah, and and yeah, and don't make it personal and don't yeah. make ad ad hominem. You, you know the word I'm trying to say. I do. Uh, Attacks and look, you, you certainly can't dispute. A lot of people want to diminish uh, Thunder Road's beer. Um, uh, you know, around some of this, and look, they're the reigning uh, mid-sized brewery at the Australian National Beer yes. Awards. Medium-sized brewery. I don't think that you can take any issue with the quality of their beer, um, and it, it really is just about uh, the name. And look, I, I guess a lot of it is your approach to business, and people do want craft beer to be a bit kumbaya. I've never, you know, I've traded under um, the name Beer Mat, or I've uh, you know adopted the name Beer Mat, um, you know, for for most of my business. I've never sought to protect that because I kind of think that. Look, if somebody else came up and said, oh, look, no, you're not being Matt, I'm being Matt, um, 10 years after I started using it, I guess most of the people that I deal with in, in that probably wouldn't want to deal with somebody that behaved like that. And, uh, you know, I, I rely on that. But it's a very small business. You know, when you've got a brewery like Stone & Wood with so much investment in the, the, the Pacific Ale name, then it becomes, the, the, the stakes are much higher. Um, and look, yeah, we'll, as you said, Prof, watch this space. More to come. Um, something, uh, something I saw in my uh, Twitter feed this morning. Um, paleo water, Prof. Have you been uh, <laughs> seen, seen anything about paleo water? It's like regular water, Matt, but now with seventy-five percent more added bullshit. <laughs> um, yes, uh, I, I saw it, uh, I, Damien. I... Uh, at Duke Welton. Damien's the uh, competitions coordinator for the Australian International Beer Awards, amongst other things, posted Stoke. Now, New Zealand Stoke Brewery has listed uh, ingredients paleo water um, on their their bottle. Um, Prof, have you looked into this at all? I'll see Damien tomorrow, Tuesday. Uh, and I'll um, I'll ask him about it. But I, I, I've never, I haven't noticed it on the um, the Stoke bottles that I've had at home. 
Um, so unless it's a it's a new sort of thing, maybe is it like Uncle Toby's oats referring to oats now as a superfood? Well, speaking of trademarks, this is Paleo TM water. So yeah. they've obviously trademarked it, but just a quick Google site saw it. Uh, but it's also a slightly different spelling to, for example, Paleo Pete, um, that the, the media seems to be referring to Pete Evans as. P A L E O. This has got an extra A in it. Ah, well, so that's probably so how they've trademarked it. Yeah. Okay. So is that, well, are we reading too much into this, Matt? Is paleo water, is that kind of like, you know, from a, a special Maori spring or something? Like, is, is, does it refer to a, is there a cultural significance to paleo? I don't know, but... Uh, is it, is it I've paleo? Just said, I've had a quick Google of paleo water and come up with alkaway.com, which is the low-carb diet is great, but it can be acidifying, the importance of combining alkaline water with the diet. And then it talks about selling this fairly expensive piece of kit by the look of it. How does the Ultra Stream produce alkaline, ionized, hydrogen rich water? <laughs> so, <laughs> now, look, oh dear. All I'm going to all I'm going to say about this, um, apart from calling um, bollocks on it, is I'm pretty sure, given that the paleo diet is all about eating what the caveman ate. I'm pretty sure they, they wouldn't have had ionising, hydrogenating <laughs> pump systems in the cave. I'm pretty sure they didn't have a PowerPoint to plug it into, even if they did increase, uh, devise this piece of equipment. But anyway, could have been, been solar powered. I, yeah, more more yeah, on let's, this, let's, more on this to come. Let's see, let's see where this goes. <laughs> okay, I'm calling shenanigans in the meantime. Okay, um, prop. Two interviews today. Um, first of all, we don't want to go back too much over the whole uh, core brewing concepts uh, uh, case. Um, there, there's still information coming out. We, we might do a summary you know, in a couple of weeks' time once we've had some uh, stuff. But we have been getting some emails from some of the brewers involved, firstly thanking us for um, looking into it, finding the um, interview that we did with Mike Rees uh, rather fascinating and giving uh, us some background to their own stories, which is really filling in the dots. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about is, you know, not having opened a brewery myself and not having looked into it, I don't know the first thing about ordering stainless steel and, uh, you know, what the common uh, terms are or how much you should be looking at paying for a brewery or any of those sorts of things. But yeah. one guy that I do know uh, does, um, Tim Wills, who's Newcastle-based, a really nice uh, beer guy, good guy to have a chat um, around with, but he works for Premier Stainless, which is a, a San Diego-based stainless steel manufacturer, um, and have installed a number of uh, craft breweries around that I know have been delivered and have worked and are making some very good beer. Uh, Green Beacon in Brisbane is one such example, um, and there are a couple of others. I know these installed the uh, Wheaties uh, Brewery. Um, so, just have had some interesting chats with Tim since the the, the core brewing thing came about, and it's provided some interesting information for me that I didn't know about. So, yeah, I thought we might have a little bit Share of a it. chat to Tim. Just mm. to, yeah, and look, it, it, it's a little bit inside if you're just uh, the casual beer drinker, but I, I think our audience um, for, for the podcast particularly are people who are fascinating with all elements. So uh, um, hopefully you'll find this uh, next 15, 20-minute chat with Tim about, you know, what you should be looking for, what you should be thinking, and just what standard terms and conditions are uh, for buying stainless steel. And I start the conversation by asking, who is Tim Wills? Tim Wills is me. Uh, I am the equipment representative for Premier Stainless System, located in Escondido, California. It is a brewery equipment manufacturer. Uh, 
that has been in existence since the year 2000. Um, we have hundreds of breweries in place uh, all over the world. So that's, that's who we are. We are um, a company that first started selling equipment here in Australia just through the Internet inquiries uh, to Premier Stainless. Uh, and that would be Big Sky and basically Murray's. Um, contacted Premier Stainless just by Googling them, I suppose. And the way I got involved with Premier Stainless was contacting them to purchase used brewing equipment um, for myself. And at that time, they weren't selling used equipment, but they were looking for a salesperson. So at the end of the day, I ended up with a job. <laughs> nice. Well, that, that, I mean, that's a, a, a great um, introduction to what we wanted to talk about today because one of the things uh, that we've seen the craft brewing industry just blossom and burgeon and uh, uh, over the last uh, 10, 15 years. And with it, we haven't seen a whole lot of new beers and beer styles but we've seen a whole range of new businesses um, come upon us as well. Um, you know, up until 10 or 15 years ago, there was very small demand for uh, brewing systems in, in the country. But with the growth of craft breweries, we've seen not just uh, businesses built around selling brewing systems, but a whole range of businesses around uh, supplying them. So um, we, we've recently seen uh, Core Brewing, which is a business that sprung up, um, go bust, leaving a lot of people disappointed. So we wanted to have a chat to you today about you know, what industry practice is and what people should consider when they're going in, and whether it's from Premier Stainless or any of the other suppliers, what sort of things they should consider when they're moving into building a, a, a brewery. So, um, Tim, I'm... Uh, a keen home brewer. I've won a couple of medals at the Australian International uh, at the Australian Home Brewers uh, Awards. Um, I'm thinking of scaling up and maybe putting in a six or twelve hundred liter uh, brewery. Where should I be starting? Um, I think really like purchasing any capital equipment, you want to go out and get some quotations, um, and you can easily vet most companies. Obviously, you want to get a quotation from a company that has some kind of reference uh, and track record. So an easy way to do that is either by going and visiting a brewery you know that's established and, and talking to them, where do they buy their equipment, how is their experience, or more simply going to someplace like Pro Brewer and saying, um, I'm looking to buy a system from Premier Stainless Systems or from DME. That's a website, Pro Brewer? That's correct. And it's a used internationally by brewers uh, here and everywhere uh, that I know. Uh, and there's other sites like it in the UK and, and other places, but it happens to be the one that I often refer to people because I often tell them if you're getting a quote from me that you really should, especially if they're representing a company, they're a brewer representing somebody else who's, who's going to sign the checks, you know, get three quotations as you normally would. Um, it's not all about money, but you want to see that things are comparable. Um, so that's kind of the starting point. And as I said earlier, most of those companies are going to require a deposit and they're going to require full payment prior to shipping. Now, that's one of the, that was an interesting uh, aspect of when we spoke off air that uh, Core Brewing, and we're not going to talk too much about Core Brewing today, but um, he was taking a deposit um, and then 
not requiring full payment until after the uh, stuff had been delivered. And so that's not a standard industry uh, um, process, is it? No, no, because then, um, and I did listen to the interview and I heard him discussing having, receiving things LCL. Um, for one, most companies in, in my level don't ship equipment LCL. LCL is less that less than a container load. So um, if you, for example, it costs $7,000 to ship a 40-foot container from San Diego to Sydney, um, and if you have that full of your equipment, when it arrives, you pay your customs fees, one-off because you're the consignee for the whole container, and then you pay GST based on the value of that equipment on the exchange rate on the day it comes through customs. So uh, what could happen to people during that last financial year when the Australian dollar was very high and then went low, you could end up having a, a bigger GST bill than you figured on, but yet you get your GST back. So if, let's say, you were buying a lot of small pieces and each one was on a pallet, then every pallet has a separate consignee listed, even if it's the same person, if he hasn't purchased the whole container. So he pays the, the customs fees multiple times. Um, we don't really do business that way. So, and we don't sell much that's small enough to do that. So when we sell equipment, it's without shipping. Um, I usually use a local shipping company here in Newcastle to give them a base quote but shipping quotes are only good for 60 days. So it's really just an estimate and an approximate. So the customer knows, you know, I'm spending, let's say he's buying a 1,200-liter system with all the backup and support tanks. He's probably going to spend around $225,000 approximately. Um, so he knows he's got that ahead of him. He knows he's going to have the shipping that comes, it's basically seven or $8,000 per 40-foot container. For an average brewery that size, you're probably going to get two containers. Uh, in our case, and in the case of many others, our tanks are made in, in China. The tanks for the brew house are shipped to San Diego with tanks that Premier Stainless buys in large groups, and there they are manufactured into brewing vessels. Um, they are by our design, and our fermentation tanks for the Australian market come directly from the factory to Australia. Uh, the factory in San Diego? No, the factory in China. In China. Use. And is there any consideration given to Australian standards in, in the, the making of, of this stuff? Absolutely. In fact, what I'm doing this morning is filling out paperwork on new AS1210s, what those are is when you have a pressure vessel in Australia, it needs to be have it, companies like me have to have the design registered with work cover. Um, in my case, I use New South Wales because that covers the entire country when you register it there. So, when a person receives a tank, it should meet AS1210. Um, in our case, the the designs come listed as either AS1210 or ASME 8 which is the U.S. equivalent, you would probably see tanks out of Germany with the EU number. I can't remember exactly what it is, but they would all meet the standard 
the way that works is when you have the drawings, you get the tank design. You have to submit those to a qualified Australian engineer who goes through and fills out the forms for work cover. He ticks all the boxes that the design meets AS1210 standards. Then you, and that's the expensive part. It's about $3,000 per design. Then you register it with work cover, which currently is, let's see what this one just came back at, $258 per registration. So in most states, when someone gets a pressure vessel, what they're supposed to do is also with the tanks, you get either what's called a U1A form or a material data form, which is uh, produced when the tank is made and signed off by an inspector that says, yes, this tank met these specific guidelines, and on that form it'll list the pressures, the thickness of the stainless steel, and the whole idea is they can make it to that or they can make it to a higher standard than that, but it at least has to meet that threshold. We might step back a little bit. Um, so th th these are some of the specifics. So it's not just a matter of going and getting an off-the-shelf uh, tank um, from the sounds of it. But I I've decided I'm going to go ahead. I've got my quotes. I've spoken to people in the industry, and hopefully um, they've given me a recommendation uh, based on their own experiences that's uh, you know, helpful. Um, I, I come to you. I say, Tim, look, we'll, we'll go ahead with your quote. Um, what happens next? I, I presume I pay a deposit of some form to uh, to confirm that purchase. That's correct. You 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 get a contract from us. You that lists all your equipment, lists the terms that we've agreed to. You sign it, send that back to us, and you make your deposit. Once you've made your deposit, you're basically in the queue with with us because currently it's 24 to 30 weeks wait. So you've got a bit ahead of time in front of you. So when you talk about um, the, the, the terms, um, do the terms vary from, for example, just delivery, or do you guys install and commission as well? Yes, that's, that's included in the uh, quote, and maybe when I get off the phone with you, I'll send you a sample of one of our quotes um, so you can just look at it. Basically, you pay, and this is, you know, it's a little bit more depending on where you're at, uh, but it might be between ten and $12,000, and for that, what you get is, drawing so as soon as you have your building site your layout you give that to us we have an engineer who then does a complete um, layout for you he does CAD drawings and elevations uh, he does all the mechanical um, call outs so that you can have your tradespeople run gas steam water electricity everything is put in place uh, hopefully before the brewery gets there um, He'll actually, you know, give you recommendations on where to put your floor drains and things like that. If you're looking at a building, you know, when things we ask, the most important questions are about the building, you know, the, the height of the ceiling, the, the height and widths of doors. How are we going to get this equipment in? I can't tell you how many people have said, well, I want to get a brewery and they'll send me the designs. I'm like, well, you can't. How are you going to get it in there? And they're like, well, what do you mean? Well, I said, well, you got to get that tank in and stand it up. You have to get a forklift in there somehow. Um, simple things, but important things. So, And what, one of the things that we hear a lot um, from uh, breweries, and I don't think I've ever heard of a brewery, uh, they, you know, we, we speak to a lot of breweries when they're getting started, and they oh, yes, we'll be up by September or we'll be up by November. I don't think I've ever heard of a brewery uh, getting up within you know, two or three months of when they first forecast uh, their, their open date. 
Um, and it, it can be everything from holdups with uh, development applications, changes to licensing laws. Um, it, for most councils uh, don't have procedures in place for breweries because um, up until recently, so few councils, uh, you know, had a had thought about breweries installing in their area that they didn't uh, do it. So quite often councils are doing this for the first time and going through a very, you know, difficult learning approach um, that, that can delay it. Have you? Is that your experience that breweries are often? Yeah, you know, very rarely very... has anybody been on time. Um, in fact, almost never, uh, in my experience, um, they've been close, but still, there's always been delays. Uh, the things that have been that are common that you need to go through. One, you want to do a bit of your homework on your building site before you put your deposit down. So you, you know what you're dealing with, and you can give the company you're dealing with information so they know what they're dealing with. You need to also know you have the right amount of electricity. Um, the things they do run into is going to be wastewater issues, and sometimes there's no issues, uh, but sometimes there are. Six strings could probably go at length about that. Um, then there's odor issues. So um, in the case of the wheat sheaf, they had odor issues, even though she's probably, you know, a kilometer away from West End Brewery. Uh, and in those cases, over the years, I have compiled kind of information, like I have an odor document that I send people that was done in a study in the UK, and it seems to get through council pretty good. I have, you know, wastewater documents and um, you know, different solutions that others have used in the past, so I can point them in that direction. Um, those are often the bigger parts. I mean, I always try to tell them, you know, go down to the council, find out who you're doing uh, business with, and make them part of the process so they feel like they have a vested interest to get it right. Um, they usually want to learn, and I, you know, I'll do things like send them uh, the Seds County. A USA video about San Diego and brew pubs, and they can actually see where a city, you know, the mayor of the city is celebrating craft beer week, and that it's, you know, brought millions and millions and millions of dollars in jobs to the community. So that they don't look at it like a bar. That's the, that's a big problem. So, you know, you want to do that homework first. You want to have a building first. You want to know that you have gas, water, um, and electricity to an adequate volume to do your job and the space to put your kit. Um, from the, the, the time that you placed the order, how long would you expect um, till the stainless actually arrives on, on the docks? Well, as I said, it's a, with us right now, we're quoting 24 to 30 weeks. That's manufacturing and shipping. So on average, it's been about 26 weeks, I would guess. Um, so what occurs for us is when the containers are going to get there, um, invariably I fly to that location. I'm there when the equipment arrives to ensure that the equipment is the way it should be, um, that it hasn't been smashed or damaged in uh, transport. Then we do what I call is, is installation assistance, and I have worked with them in advance to make sure we have a rigor there, to make sure we have the right kind of equipment to stand the equipment safely. Um, and we go in, and we stand up all the tanks, and we stand up the brewery, and we put it together. You know, it takes usually two days, maybe three at the most, um, and that's standing the tanks, pushing them together, getting them level, hooking up all the piping, 
um, hooking up, let's say if there's a mash rigs, hooking up the mash motor, getting an electrician in, a local uh, electrician to wire the, the panel together because the panel comes and it's complete and the wires that are running from the brew house are complete, but they still need to have a local electrician, you know, that's certified the electrician, land those wires. And we get it all together and usually I give it a nice clean and then I go away. And then it's up to them to get their trades in. Uh, and as soon as, you know, they kind of give us a, a countdown, I give them a, com a commissioning checklist, as it were. Yes, the water is in. Yes, the glycol is in. Yes, the gas is in. Um, we have waste. Uh, we have someplace to put the grain. We have grain. We have hops. We have yeast. Everything they need. And then I tell Premier Stainless, and they get one of our um, commissioning brewers, ready to go, and it could be anyone from the president of the company to a handful, I think there's six uh, brewers that work for us full-time, and they fly down, and they go through the equipment, they show people how to cost it and passivate their, their tanks, they go through sanitation, uh, they make sure all the motors are turning in the right direction on the pumps, so on and so forth, get the hot liquor running. And then the next day we do a brew, and then the next day we do another brew, and then we're gone. And I, I should say that before any of this has arrived in the in the country, before it's even left China, full payment's been made, hasn't it? Absolutely. So that that, that sounds like a, something that wasn't being done in, in the case of core brewing. So full payment has got to be made. Um, who who is the payment made to? Do they make it to you, or do no, they make the? They make it directly to Premier Stanley. Um, in the contract, it lists Premier Stainless, it lists the bank and routing numbers, that information, you know, lists the contacts for the president of the company, so on and so forth. So, no, they don't pay anything to me. It, it sounds like, just looking at some of the um, amounts that have uh, gone um, missing in core brewing for an, an, a kit that you were saying would cost $220,000 uh, minimum, it, it, it sounds like there is a fair expense involved in this full-service model that uh, Premier Stainless uh, offers. Well, I mean, I, absolutely. I mean, you're paying for – I mean, I, I don't really know what it costs us to produce our equipment. That's not really – I'm not at that pay grade. Um, but, but what is involved in the price is – the, the cost of the engineers, the cost of welders who build the brew houses, the cost of the electricians who build the control panels, um, you know, all that sort of stuff, buying the equipment in bulk. I mean, we don't buy one tank at a time. We buy them in the hundreds. That's how we get our price down, you know, by committing to 100 of these tanks or 100 of those tanks or, you know, in the case of when we build a, uh, we build sell a lot of keg washing equipment. So when we buy pumps, immersion heaters, whatever, we're buying in large bulk um, volumes so that we get the prices down, so we can make the, the equipment and make a profit. I mean, the company I work for, when I started almost uh, five and a half, six years ago, had 12 people, and we have 49 now. So growing. Um, so you got to pay that. You got to pay your rent. You got to pay all that stuff, um, and that's part of it. And what what sort of support do you provide following uh, brewery commissioning? What what sort of guarantees do people get when they uh, buy uh, from a company like Premier? 
they get a base warranty, obviously, on their equipment. Um, but what I have to say is we give pretty much follow-up support forever to some degree. I mean, someone calls me, they got a problem. You know, I'm an equipment sales guy with a lot of brewing experience, so a lot of times I just put them directly in contact with the engineer or the guy in charge of that department and let them solve those problems. I also keep a lot of bits and pieces here. You know, I keep uh, switches and buttons and uh, sensors and um, got all kinds of really weird stuff that <laughs> I, weird as I think about it. I mean, I have a whole closet in my house that's just full of little brewery parts that can go out, you know, little parts of keg washers, little coils, um, things like that. So if they break, they're not waiting to get it from the United States. And I just typically send them out. I've never had Premier ask me to charge anybody for any of the bits, and and they don't. So I guess uh, it's, it's a fine line between making this an ad for uh, Premier and uh, sort of making it something that's just some uh, base information. But are, are there two, you know, two or three just pitfalls that you can recommend that someone who's sitting at home wanting to get into brewing that you would just sort of say, look, this, this, and this are just fundamentals to avoid or to to, to avoid uh, getting into trouble? I mean, uh, checking on references. That is, you know, it, in anything you're doing, uh, capital equipment-wise, you're going to want to make sure that these people have produced this equipment successfully. Um, in the case of Australia, you really want to make sure that they have uh, all the Australian standards in place because I know that one of the bigger problems is here is a lot of people just buy tanks. They see a, ch a cheap tank, they order it, they get it, and they're using it, and that's all and good. But it's when something goes wrong that it'll become you know, pear-shaped. So making sure that things are built to Australian standard, um, making sure that you have a building that is uh, you know, the right size, that you have it secured. Um, you know, those are the – and not buying too small a system. I mean, I don't want to – uh, belabor the point, but if you meet guys and you, you go to the craft brewers conference, the biggest complaint that you hear from somebody who buys a nano brewery is that they should have bought a larger brewery. So in the case of Australia, that's doubly true because you're paying for the logistics. No matter what you're getting, more often than not, is going to be shipped a long way here. So how do you maximize that container? How do you make sure it's as full as it's going to be? and you got what you're going to get, and that it's going to carry you into the future. So how do you – you need to forecast to yourself, how much do I have to sell? How much do I think I'm going to sell in 12 months, 24 months, and 36 months? One of the great attractions of craft brewing, apart from beer and the people associated with it, but one of the great attractions is – this romance of the craft, and you hear stories of uh, Sierra Nevada kicking off, where uh, you know, hand drilling metal sheets to uh, make the the um, lauderton, um, or you know, breweries that are built out of recycled uh, dairy equipment. Um, is it is that a realistic means of entry into the the brewing industry, in your view? Look, I think if you know, if there's three guys sitting in the garage and they all brew and one of them happens to be a, a welder and one of them happens to be an electrician or a plumber, that, you know, that, that can completely be done. I mean, there's a great guy, a book by a guy in Colorado. It's about Franken-brews. 
you know, and he basically has built breweries out of a lot of equipment. It's not a bad way to enter into the market. Um, as long as your expectations aren't huge, but you can only do that for the brew house. You know, you can't do that for the pressure vessels. So there is limitations. Um, I, you know, I would guess that the pressure vessels coming in from core brewing, uh, I'd be curious if they were registered with work cover anywhere. Um, cause I'm a, if they were coming from stout, which is what I had heard, um, I doubt they have any designs registered. So, um, so that's, yeah, you can definitely do that. Talk to, but you talk to people, you know, at certain breweries and they say, you know, the amount of money I spent to get my Franken brewery up and running, I could have just saved that and, and put it elsewhere. It just depends on your, on how you want to get it done. Well, Tim Wills, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, from Tim Wills from Premier Stainless, thank you very much for joining us for Radio Brews News, and no doubt we'll be seeing you in Melbourne for the Craft Brewers Conference and Good Beer Week. Yes, I have a small booth there. So, um, you know, basically we'll be handing out a catalogue there with pricing in it. Actually, we'll be linking to your uh, catalogue here as well. As I said, it's not an ad, but uh, certainly uh, give people an idea of what stainless steel uh, does cost. So, Tim, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News, and we'll uh, talk again soon. Okay. Cheers, mate. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There you go, Prof. Uh, not quite all you have wanted to know about stainless steel, but we're afraid to ask. But hopefully it will just give people a little bit of a background as to, you know, the, the hows and whys and wherefores of buying a, a brewery. Yeah, for sure. I think too, it if nothing else, it will answer a few questions that have perhaps been raised by the um, the, the core brewing uh, situation. It, it certainly has for me. The, the, I, I think I see, uh, yeah, it's filled in some of the gaps, I think, where, where perhaps some bad business practice or, or uh, you know, unseen traps uh, that may have led to some of the decisions that were made. But even if just, uh, you know, a, a lot of people pay deposits to Core Brewing, um, whereas uh, Premier require full payment before it's shipped. Shipped, um, yeah. Which was an interesting thing. So anyway, um, listeners, uh, make of that what you will. But we will be linking to, uh, Tim has offered to give us a um, copy of just a generic quote for a 1,200 litre um, brewery, just to give you a rough idea of what breweries cost. And also, uh, we'll be putting Premier Stainless's uh, brochure there as well, so you can see what they do. Uh, Premier Stainless, God, we're ringing the bell. It's sounding like lunchtime at the school tuck shop. Um, Premier Stainless has been a past sponsor of Australian Brews News, but you know, hopefully that wasn't too much of an ad. Um, anyway, somebody who has never sponsored the program, um, a little brewery in Byron Bay called Byron Bay Brewing. Um, we touched last week, we broke the exclusive that uh, CUB has... Um, no longer producing the Byron Bay Pale Lager that they Dis discontinued the agreement. Discontinued the agreement. Yes. Um, actually, funny, funny aside, Prof. I did get an email three or four weeks ago from somebody at Byron Bay asking whether we would advertise 
um, run an advertisement for their new brewer. Um, I replied to them, sort of told them how much we charge for our standard uh, brewer and never heard back. So I think somebody suddenly realised who they were dealing with um, because apparently we're almost uh, you know, 18 months later, Australian Brews News, it's still not mandatory reading in Byron Bay or at least some parts of it. But anyway, um, Byron Bay and CUB are no longer um, producing. But 12 months on from the ACCC's um decision around the uh, Byron Bay agreement and you know, uh, CUB put their hands up, said, look, yes, um, in hindsight, we were wrong. Uh, they It wasn't a fine. They did pay um, a bond, um, yep. I think it yeah. is. Um, but I, I know that at the time, the ACCC was looking um, into what they call credence claims. Um, and some letters did go out to brewers um, ask, you know, making some investigations around what they were saying on the label. And I thought, you know, it's, it's a good idea. It's something, provenance is something that increasingly becomes uh, of interest to Australian Brewers News. Um, it, it's a topic that we do look into from time to time. So I thought, you know, we'd have a chat to uh, the ACCC and find out a little bit more um, about what the ACCC's job is, what brewers can do, and, uh, you know, uh, what they shouldn't do and put on the label to avoid uh, coming under ACCC scrutiny? The ACCC's role covers a number of things. So under consumer law, uh, our role is essentially to stop misleading and, defend, and uh, defend, uh, misleading and active um, advertising. Um, so it's, it's not about controlling the price of a good. Um, it's just making sure that consumers aren't misled. Now, it's a very powerful bit of law. It can be applied in a number of ways, but sometimes people say, well, consumers are getting you know, ripped off. Someone's charging a price for a good that's way above the cost of production. That's not against the law, but misleading consumers is. So that's the consumer part of what we do on the we're the national product safety regulator, so if someone's selling an unsafe good to consumers, we have a power to uh, assist with voluntary recalls, advise the minister on a mandatory recall. It's basically a, a recall role. We're also the, the competition regulator. That's where we deal with people who are colluding to fix prices, what are known generally as cartels, uh, we approve mergers and we basically deal with issues where there's a substantial lessening of, of competition. Uh, so that's our competition role and we also have a bit of a role as an infrastructure regulator, particularly in relation to telecommunications, uh, BNBN and things like that, but I'll, I'll, I won't go into that detail. So we have a fairly broad remit, but on consumer matters, it's basically don't mislead or deceive consumers. And it was on that point that uh, last year in April, um, the ACCC, after negotiations with uh, CUB, you accepted a court-enforceable undertaking um, from Carlton United Breweries in relation to your concerns that the brewery had misrepresented what Byron Bay Pale Lager was, that it was brewed by a small brewer in Byron. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the process that goes into a, a court-enforceable undertaking? Because it's not a, it's not a court decision, is it? No, it's not a court decision. It's an undertaking that's enforceable by the court. So the ACCC enters into an agreement with a company. 
and if the company doesn't comply with that agreement, uh, then we can take them to court and get the court to make sure that they do. Very, very rarely is that ever needed. Uh, we've got the power to enter into these undertakings under our Act. They are enforceable by the court. So uh, it's, it's as if they've got the, uh, the blessing of the law, but, and indeed they do, but we've got to go to a court to get that. But they are binding undertakings. And can you tell me a little bit about the circumstances uh, that led you to uh, choose Byron Bay Parlager? Because subsequent to that decision, uh, the ACCC has been communicating with a number of uh, breweries um, and looking at their labelling. What was it about? And that had been a situation that had been going on for some time before the Byron Bay case. What was it about the Byron Bay uh, case that brought it to your attention or gave you the impetus to actually pursue um, some outcomes with that case? Yes, look, very good question. Just to step back, we've had an interest for a year or two prior to that in what are called credence claims, where uh, how a good or good is made or where it's from um, has been of particular interest. So sometimes people will say a good is made in Australia when it's not. Um, it's made in King Island when it's not, uh, so giving it some uh, some appeal that it doesn't have because it's it's not Australian made or it's not a, a cheese product or a meat product from King Island which has a premium brand rating. Also, how something is made, the classic one there is free-range eggs. 40% um, of the eggs sold in Australia are, are free-range. We allege that on a number of occasions the birds hardly if ever get out of the barn, uh, so they can't be free range. Now the reason we take these things on is for two important reasons. One is consumers are paying for something that they're not getting, and two is that people who are competing legitimately are losing out. So if you go back to the free range example, you want to make sure that those who are genuinely using free range where the hens can go outside each day and do go outside each day, uh, that they're not losing out to people who are saying their eggs are free range when in fact they can't leave the barn. That's just that's just inappropriate competition. It's it's a, it's it damages innovation. It means that small companies who try and differentiate themselves can't do it. Now, with that background, um, we saw the Byron Bay uh, beer. It was we thought. A fairly concerning example because all you had on the beer, whether you look at it front or back of the label, was Byron Bay beer. You had pictures of Byron Bay on a map, so every representation was that this was a small company and that the beer was brewed in Byron Bay. And when we found out that uh, it was in fact owned by CUB and the beer was brewed in um, Warnervale. In, in Sydney, the, the main brewery, uh, we felt that not only were consumers being misled because they may have wanted a, a niche product produced by a small company, but also other craft beer makers who are, are trying to compete against Byron Bay beer, that they won't lose out because uh, uh, somebody's misrepresenting what they are. So that's the reason we took the action. And I noticed that uh, since since you took that action, um, that you've been communicating with a number of breweries. Um, has that been 
to raise issues that you might have or with their particular labels or just to um, advise them of the decision generally and work with them to make sure that they're telling a clear story about their brand? Yeah, look, pretty much. I mean, what we do when we take these sort of actions is we we usually do them to send a wider message. So it's not just a one-off. Uh, we don't take that many cases. We don't enter into that many undertakings. But when we do take someone to court or we enter into a court-enforceable undertaking, we then try and make sure that that is widely known. So after the Byron Bay undertaking, we wrote to a large number of players in the beer market um, seeking to uh, make sure they understood what had happened and what that meant for them. Uh, we've now uh, been engaging with many brewers, some large, some not so large, and fundamentally we've been trying to get two things. One is to get them to say when it's, a, in fact, a, a, a big company that's, that's making the product, and so I'm delighted, for example, to acknowledge that the Lion Group is now saying that when it's one of their beers that they'll say on the back of the label that this particular um, beer is part of the line group, quote unquote, and that's great. And also we're making sure that where you've got a small company, if they start to contract to, to brew the, the, the beer under contract, that they make that clear as well on the back of the label. So those are the two main things we're doing. We've had about 12 different organisations that have changed their behaviour and we're still in discussion with others. So it's been very successful. We've been, so far, pleased with the response from industry. Uh, we're still talking with a couple, a number of other players who would like to get on board. Um, so it, it's been successful so far, but there's a bit more to do. I've noticed that uh, particularly over the at the moment when you go to bottle shops, there's obviously a transition phase going through where some of the old and some of the new labels. So it's obviously coming to fruition now. But um, one of the uh, examples is the um, Coles-owned beer brand Steamrail, um, which uh, has been contract brewed and has recently uh, born started to bear the label uh, part of the Liquorland um, Group. Um, that's that. That was one of the ones that, in in my view, was a fairly clear cut case because uh, they created this Australian beer connoisseurs. Um, that was the label that they put on. And looking at the number, the amount of traffic that came through uh, the Australian Brews News website, where people were googling who is Australian beer connoisseurs, there's obviously a lot of consumer interest um, in this very crafty looking beer and who is the ownership behind it. But it, 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 having Liquorland's name on it, for example, isn't the name that people are really interested in Coles because even Liquorland is a one step removed from Coles and sounds like it's a smaller company or a smaller entity if not everyone knows that Coles is the owning entity? Well, look, um, we've had a lot of discussions with Coles. We're, we're certainly, uh, we think, making good progress with them, so we're, we're pleased with those discussions. Um, there may be more to come there, uh, but we are trying to work with the industry as much as we can. Um, and so, for example, on some occasions, we've allowed them to take time to cut over the new labelling. Uh, at other times, we've, we've engaged with them and seen how best to deal with the issue. Look, let's just see where we get to on the, 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 the Coles matter. I don't want to 
preempt that. Um, but, but I guess it is an interesting question how many people are aware of Litherland. Uh, I would have thought that many people did know that was a, a major uh, organisation because they've, they've got quite a lot of bottle shops. Um, uh, and, uh, but, but look, that's a, that's, a, that's a good point. But as I say, I would have thought many people would know who, who owns Litherland or at least they'd know they're a very large organisation. They do, and I guess that's the, where the question of scale comes in when you've got a group such as Coles, which owns the First Choice, which is the big box store. They've got Liquorland, and then they've also got uh, Vintage Sellers. So they've got three different offerings in the market. Um, and I don't think people are fully aware quite... Um, it's certainly the feedback that I get that, that they know that there is an entity behind them, but they're not necessarily sure which one. Um, another example that's been raised with us uh, here at Brews News recently is... For example, Coca-Cola's entry into um, brewing through the Australian Beer Company, which is a joint venture with the Casella wine producers. And then they've uh, created um, the Australian Beer Company, which in turn has a brand called uh, Yenda. Um, and that's one where I think the, the feedback from people when they find out you know, the Australian Beer Company is the um, partnership that is producing the beer, but there is a sense that I get from consumers is that they want to know the ultimate, you know, that Coke is the name that they're interested in seeing in deciding what price or value they put on the beer. Is that something that the ACCC can work with or you know, are you hamstrung by you know, corporate uh, rules where Coke isn't the ultimate owner of uh, a brand such as Yendo? We can certainly work on the issue the, uh, and we're not, we're not ham hamstrung in any precise way, because the the rule is what would a reasonable consumer think? Um, that that's the that's the guiding light, and that guides on guides us in terms of how we go about these issues. So, look, all I can say is we're working through a number of these issues. We understand how important they are, and in a sense, the uh, as you imply, the the more some of these bigger companies seek to disguise who they are, the more important it is that we deal with that because they're only doing it for one reason uh, and that is to sell more beer under a slightly, you know, you know, without actually giving the consumers all the information that, you know, that, that they, they obviously have the view that if the consumers knew all the things you've just mentioned, they, they might not sell as much beer. So the, the fact, you know, the more companies want to pursue this behaviour, the more important it is that we we deal with it, and so all I can say is all this is a, a work in progress. As I say, we've we've got changes with 12 companies, uh, and we're very pleased about that. But there's certainly more to do. You've actually preempted uh, a, a question I wanted to ask. I happened upon a, a quote um, that seemed to sum up a lot of what you just said, and it's from a, an American uh, case. It was listed in an American legal textbook called The Law of Unfair Competition um, that was published around about 1906, but it quotes a case law that says, the law is not made for the protection of experts, but for the public, that vast multitude, which includes the ignorant, the unthinking and the credulous, who in making purchases do not stop to analyze, but are governed by appearance and general impressions. Is that a pretty good rule of thumb for what, Kate, what, what um, consumer law should be trying to do? Look, yes, it is, uh, and I guess I'll just go back to my own words, um, but, but that's, I'm not disagreeing with what you just said there. It is about what would a typical consumer believe. So you get those usual statements where somebody says, look, I'm making 
the best beer in the world. Now we know that I think most people would think that consumers would not treat that comment very seriously. Um, so someone might assert it, but that would be what's defined in, in our trade as being puffery. You know, it would just be a bit of an exaggeration and nobody's going to take it too seriously. But where you say something that people would have a reason to believe or you omit something that people, by not seeing it, would, would therefore also be misled, then that's when we act. So it, it's, it's not in any way try, try to say you're dealing with uh, consumers who, who don't know much. It's more, would a typical consumer be misled by this? And that's the, that's the test we apply. And then we also ask ourselves, well, how much does it matter? Uh, because we have to prioritise what we do. And for us, it matters if, it, if we judge it matters to consumers and us, for us, it matters also if we think there's com competition detriment. And, and certainly in the case of craft beer, we well know that there's a lot of small players out there making and selling craft beer. They are small companies. They are uh, making the beer in a, in a, in a, small, in a small brewery. Uh, and it's unfair if they're competing against people who are portraying themselves as the same thing. That, that's just unfair competition. So I don't, I don't have any problem with that with that term. Um, but here, it's it's all through the lens of what would a reasonable consumer believe. We also see these days a lot of place names springing up on beer bottles. Byron Bay was one example, but. Um, we were seeing you know, Sydney suburbs cropping up, we're seeing Victorian uh, suburbs cropping yes. up and you know, surely the only reason to name a product after a place is to create an emotional link between the product and the place and so we're seeing you know, you know, Sydney suburb X um, with the, the label saying a post office box in that suburb even though the brewery isn't there and then they'll often um, have a, a fairly blurry statement um, about a beer being brewed in honour of that place um, it, it, is that something that, that you're looking to as well? It is. Um, I mean, we do need to be careful how far we go here. So we don't... If someone says this is brewed in a particular suburb... Sorry, let me start that again, uh, consistent with what you were saying. If somebody... If, if the label on the beer is uh, uh, a particular suburb, uh, let me just make one up, uh, Brighton Beer, for example, a suburb of Melbourne... Provided over the back of the label it's, it's sufficiently clear that it's not made in Brighton, if indeed it isn't made in Brighton, then that's fine. I mean, we're not seeking to uh, do more than that, uh, as long as someone who wants to have a decent look at the label can find out what they need to know. Uh, we're not going to stop them calling it Brighton beer simply because they, um, they're not making it in Brighton. We, we haven't gone that far. Let me hasten to say we have in other circumstances... Uh, for example, someone called their honey um, uh, Victoria Honey. In fact, it was made in Turkey. And it wasn't we even bought... honey from memory, from memory of well, that, that case. that was the one that wasn't even honey, yes. That was, yes. A, that was a lovely example. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that was one where we thought, well, calling it Victoria Honey does suggest it's Australian, um, whereas calling it Brighton Beer, well, I guess if people want to find out that it's actually made in in, in Sydney, well, that's, you know, they can look on the back of the label. So, it, it, look, this is very much a matter of judgment. We're trying to um, change behaviour. We're trying to get clarity. Uh, I guess we're stopping short of complete p 
security, but we do want consumers, and as I say, this is a, an exercise that's continuing, we're going to keep at it. We do want consumers to know uh, who's brewing the beer and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the two things are, are you part of a larger group, firstly, and are you brewing it or are you contracting it out to a larger group? From what I've heard you say there, um, then say you've got Brighton Beer um, and if you've got a Brighton PO box because that's where your your, your business address is, um, but the beer is brewed outside of Brighton, it, from from the sounds of it, then the, the the label should somewhere have a fairly clear you know fairly clear statement that this beer is not brewed in Brighton. Is that what I'm hearing or? Look, largely, yes. I mean, if the beer was brewed, in fact, in Moorabbin, a neighbouring suburb, perhaps we wouldn't mind. Yes. If it was brewed, um, you know, in, in Sydney by Carlton United, then we most certainly would mind. So it is a bit of a matter of judgement. We're really trying to make sure that, that, that people are getting what they're paying for and that there's no competitive harm here. But, yes, if, if, you know, if they were really saying this is uh, Brighton beer... And it, it's really not made anywhere near Brighton. And by the way, it's actually made by a big company. Uh, that, that's when we'd take action. So it does, it does matter you know, how, how important it is. So if it's in fact made in, in Moorabbin, well, I'm not sure it matters so much, provided it's you know, truly the small company it's trying to portray itself as. It, it sounds like it's a, with so many shades of grey, and I don't want to sort of make any illusions along... Uh, along that line, but with so many shades um, of meaning, that it sounds like it could be a very hard law to police. And uh, you, my observation is your approach is to work with breweries to try and correct them and try and give them guidance, rather than come in and be the stormtroopers uh, or the sheriff riding into town um, uh, arresting people. Is that a fair assessment of your approach? Largely, it is, but not not completely. I mean, we had. Uh had we not got the undertaking from Carlton and United in the case of Byron Bay Beer, then we would have taken them to court. Uh, and if we find something that we think is egregious, uh, you know, really bad, re really very misleading, uh, then we won't hesitate to take court action if we don't get the cooperation we think we need. But yes, you're right. Uh, how far you go, how much change you're seeking to achieve, th that is a matter of judgment. And uh, I think most... Um, people in the ACCC's position, I mean, you do exercise judgment. Uh, if I could make the comparison, even the police force exercises judgment about what it deals with and what it doesn't. I mean, if there's a, a crime of murder, well, of course, the police will... That, that will be a top priority for them. If somebody breaks into your house and steals $10, well, they may just... I mean, it's still theft, but they may not have the resources to put many people to, checking, to chasing the thief. So... These things are matters of, of judgment and resources, but uh, we have made a big commitment to try and make a difference in this craft beer area, and I think we've had success so far, and we'll certainly have more success because we'll stay with it. What's the role of the industry's uh, body, for example, the Craft Beer Industry Association, which I believe you've had uh, dealings with or you've been working with them as well? Do you think that they should be uh, providing clear direction on as an industry group um, around these areas? Absolutely. We always work with industry groups. We spend an awful lot of time with industry groups generally. Uh, one of my deputy chairs, Michael Shaper, is, is out talking to industry groups 
just about all the time, I think, although that's not quite true, but he's out he's out there with a lot of industry groups. So we work through industry groups as much as we can. We make sure they understand what we're trying to achieve. And, uh, yes, we seek to get as much help from them as we can. How much help they provide is, is up to them, and I won't make any comment in this case, but uh, we like to get as much help from them as we possibly can. And we certainly make clear what it is we're trying to do and why we're doing it so that they can communicate very clearly with their members. Terrific. I guess the, the, the one last uh, issue I just want to touch on very, very briefly, you mentioned the lessening of competition role that the ACCC has. Uh, you, you've had a very well-publicised uh, investigation afoot into TAP contracts. Are you able to bring us up to date on where that uh, investigation currently is? Look, a little bit I can. Uh, that's uh, an investigation that's still continuing. Uh, these things do take time, and I know it's frustrating for people. Uh, at the end of the day, on these issues, we have to find out what's actually going on. We have to make a competition assessment. And if we're going to take it forward, we need to put evidence in front of a court. So there's a lot of work to be done. So we've been in contact with a lot of licensed premises, trying to find out what their contracts are. We've been in touch with the main companies, finding out their perspective on things. So it does take time to get in touch with people, get information back, uh, analyse that information and find out you need more information. These things do take time, but it's a, it's, it is a, an active investigation and it's still continuing. Um, I, I can't say more than that and I, I'm afraid I can't put a time on when, it, when, when we'll get out the other end of it either. But, but it's certainly a priority for us. Um, what, what sort of powers does the ACCC have um, to compel publicans, for example, to reveal their contracts? Are they able to claim that they're commercial in confidence or do you have the power to ask or just when the ACCC asks, people help? Both are true. Uh, we have the power to compel information. Often when we approach somebody, uh, they'll say, for example, look, I've, yes, I do have that information, but I can't give it to you voluntarily because it's subject to confidentiality. Uh, but if you ask it, ask me for it under your compulsory powers, well then of course I've got to give it. Uh, so yes, we have compulsory information powers that allows us to get information we need, such as those TAP contracts, and uh, uh, often people will cooperate with us where they can, knowing that it's much better to do that than get one of these notices to provide information. But as you just said, uh, Sometimes you have to use those notices to overcome confidentiality concerns. But no, we, that, that is our key power. But that is, uh, the, 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 in, in a sense, the, the main power that the ACCC has that, that allows us to do what we do. It's, it's hugely important to us. Terrific. Now, just before we, we let you go, if any brewers have any questions about their labelling, um, that they would see, can they seek guidance from the ACCC? And if so, how would they contact, uh, contact the um, Commission to, to get that guidance? Uh, they can do that. Uh, they can either contact us through our, our, our web page. They can also contact us through, I mean, the person leading it is Mr. Paul Zawa, Z-A-W-A, at the Melbourne office. All they really need to do is get on the website uh, and that will get directed to the relevant area. So they most certainly can uh, get in touch with us. We'd be delighted to deal with them. Terrific. Rod Sims, thank you very much for your time in uh, joining us on Radio Brews News today. Thanks, Matt. Thanks very much for your interest. The 
yeah, no, the fascinating stuff. It's we've covered, I, we've covered a bit. We, we've, we normally speak to brewers or beer. Technically, we've spoken to beer people, but uh, a little bit different for our listeners this week. Yeah, I, I find the ACCC stuff a little bit um, frustrating because it's not that they deal in grey areas, and you know, part of that interview you know, brought it into, you know, made the issues a little bit clearer. But at the same time, as they say, you know, it's, it's very, very hard to have to look at the totality of the um, decisions. And, you know, to be honest, it's probably not not as stringent and as, and, and as clear as I'd like it personally. But, you know, it, it, it's a tough old world and we certainly don't want things being too prescriptive um, because that just makes everything harder for everybody. No, um, but, you know, but also perhaps the um, the greyness of the, of the rules is a lesson for anyone to, I guess, consider, put a little bit more consideration into what you name your beers or what claims you make on the label, that sort of thing, because you just don't know how it's, you know. I guess you need to either make it clearly, um, you know, humorous or you need to just be aware that, you know, it, how, how it may be can construed later on down the track. Yeah, exactly. And look, I'm... I mean, I've got my own concept. I think I might have discussed on the podcast before. It's the idea of the fire break where, you know, when there is a, a, a non-distinct line, you make sure you stop well short of it, well, well short of it, because if you, you know, if you stop well short of it, then it's very easy to point out the people who are going close and over the line. But if everybody goes to what they think is the line, it makes it very hard to work out where the line is. But, you know, that, that's that's just me and, you know, I live in this you know, little fairyland sometimes. <laughs> That's as good a place as any, I think, to say au revoir. <laughs> well, before you do, one thing I wanted to talk about um, before we went uh, was crap beer. Um, Prof, have you been seeing any ads come up in your Facebook feed sort of talking about don't drink crap beer? Yes, yes. Something has come across my um, my feed, which I found interesting for, for, yeah, for the claims that they're making. Is it something we could follow up i think definitely something uh, we, we can follow up because you know I, I i've been very critical in the past of big brewers who have marketed for example um, pure blonde style beers you know, you know low carb beers has been yep. the answer to uh, the beer belly because my view of that is that if you're saying one type of beer is better for the beer belly the others are worse for the beer belly um, when it's really not um but at the same time, if you're describing one element of the beer market, and let's face it, it is the biggest part of the beer market as crap, um, you know, what is your basis for doing that? Because, you know, you, to, to my view, we want to be celebrating all things beer because the stronger the, yep. the, the beer category is, the better. Um, so anyway, I fired off a little question. You know, what in your view is crap beer? And I came back with this little uh, answer. It has everything to do with ingredients. Craft brewers use simple quality ingredients without adding preservatives, whereas your more commercially produced, what we refer to as crap beers, don't. There is a growing trend amongst consumers <laughs> today to seek out quality, hence the growth in independent coffee roasters, bakers, chocolatiers, food markets, and natural wines. This can only be a good thing. Many consumers, including beer drinkers, would rather pay more money to buy a consumable product that tastes great and has less chemicals and environmental impact. Crap beer or crap anything doesn't use... Uh, the best ingredients. There was a time and a place for everything, a time when only a packet of M&Ms and a VB will do, even if they are crap. And you know, there's a lot in that statement, Prof. Yes, a lot of people would like to pay more for what they perceive to be quality. But I think to deride you know, a beer like VB, which is still, depending on the day of the week, you know, the 
biggest or the second biggest beer in Australia is using crap ingredients and being pumped full of chemicals is, um, well, you know, for want of a better word. A, you want to be able to back that up. Yes, yes. And, and quite simply, you can't. You know, look, say what you like about the flavour of the beers, um, and they may not be the strongest flavour, but they are certainly targeted at a market that wants those beers. That market is changing. More and more people want more options and more choices. But to yep. label those beers as being crap in qualitative terms is just wrong, out and out wrong, but it's also not helpful for the market as a whole. So, yeah, just a bit of a teaser for future episodes. We, we're going to sort of pick up this a little bit more and uh, sort of look at the issue of, you know, do uh, beers um, or what beers have chemicals in, what beers have uh, preservatives in. So watch out for that in coming weeks, uh, re- uh, listeners, because, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's an issue that you do like. And, Prof, I don't mind saying that over the last couple of weeks, just as a result of circumstance, I've been at a number of events where Crown Lager or Crown Golden Ale has been served. And I'll tell you what, it wasn't a bad beer to drink. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not the most flavoursome, you know, Imperial IPA or anything like that. But in quality, in quality terms, I don't think that you could fault it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, look, I'm on a bit of a not no, you know, champion for big beer, I don't think. But, yeah, on a bit of a rampage uh, coming up about, you know, what is crap beer. But that's a good place to leave it, Prof. So, uh, Pete, as always, great to chat. Um, thank you for joining me. Thank you for your company on the show. And uh, I'm looking forward to having a bit of time with you in Melbourne next week. Yeah, looking forward to it. Listeners, don't forget, we do have the Bruin Transfer at Gabs, the great Australasian beer spectacular, Saturday afternoon, 4 p.m. Um, if you don't have tickets yet, make sure you jump along and we'll uh, put a link in the show notes to how you can get along to that session of... Uh, um, uh, the Gabs, and hopefully uh, join us in what might even go up as a future edition of Radio Brews News. Excellent. Look forward to it. Till next time, the men in Lederhosen are chomping at the bit, Prof. Talk <laughs> to you very soon. I hope that's not a euphemism. And we're out.